morning, everybody. We'll, we'll kind of ease into this and, um, and kind of carry on from Jeff's study on uh, just a, a you know, very broad look at Abraham as a whole and many things that kind of swirled around Abraham, uh, Abram as he was coming to Abraham. And so thank you, Jeffrey, for that. Um, and uh, I wanted to just, as we pick back up in this this section of Romans, which is really Romans three twenty seven through thirty one. There's a couple of things that that I I realize is my my teaching style often moves us all over the place, and um, I, I want to be more intentional about helping you understand why I'm where I am. Um, because this morning's study is at great risk of, if that is difficult or frustrating for anybody, this morning may in fact do that again. And I, I just want to apologize in advance and, and try to emphasize that, that there is, as I spoke a couple of weeks ago, there is a main rail that Paul is talking about here. And I would honestly say two weeks ago, I had a good sense of what that was but I had no clarity like I have right now as to what that was. So we're gonna spend a little bit of time and it may feel like, well, aren't we in Romans? Why are we in the book of Acts? But I wanna help you understand, this is the thing I want us to have said in our mind this morning. Why was this so personal for Paul? Why did he spend almost the entirety of the book of Romans unpacking the very topic that we're going to touch on this morning? Because it really is unpacked all the way through the book of Romans. Okay, And uh, so I, wanna, I want you to just hold on to that as I'm moving us through all these various passages, a few from the gospel, a number of them from early Acts, and then a few of them from the later Acts. Uh, and then back into Romans. And before I pray, there's a, there's a couple of things I want to kind of clarify for all of us. Is, is If you're familiar with the word cloud concept, it draws a word picture of the words that are used. And if you do a word cloud on the book of Romans, there are three words that are distinctly separate from all the other words used in volume by Paul. And I thought it was very interesting the first time I looked at it and thought about it. It's God, it's Christ, and it's the law. Now think about our study so far, right? The righteousness of God that becomes the righteousness from God, which is Christ. So you see the God, Christ, totally separate and distinct from what? The law. That is this theme that Paul flows all the way through this book. But as you will see in this text this morning, there's something very personal about this, and I want you to see that very clearly, and quite honestly, very tenderly. Because these are real people that we're reading about. The Apostle Paul was a real 
human being and he had feelings, he had emotions, he wasn't some automatron that was just, right? This was life for him. And he had all the emotions and struggles that we have and maybe even more when you, when you see some of this unpacked this morning, I hope, okay? So keep me on task there. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is it appears as best as one can tell from the chronology of, of the writings of these books, Romans was written about eight to 10 years before the book of Acts was written. I want you to keep that in mind, right? Because we have the whole, the whole New Testament. Uh, not then. Romans was being written eight to 10 years later, Acts was being written. And approximately one to two years after the book of Acts was written, Paul was martyred. Right, so that here we are. This is the reality of the lives of these of this early church that I want us to see. Before that, let me let me just pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning as we assemble with the saints and those who love you, love your beloved Son, our Lord and our Savior, and are so thankful for the intimacy we have with the Holy Spirit that dwells in us to illumine our hearts and minds. And we just want to praise our triune God this morning. We just want to ask that the spirit of our Lord would just illumine our hearts and minds to these truths and just tenderize us to the truths and the plight of the early church and the intensity of those very same battles we have today for the truth and the gospel and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray these things to you and in your most precious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so look at with me at Romans 3.27. We're gonna look at all the way down to 3.31. We touched on this last week, but I really wanna emphasize Romans 3.31. But you'll see here, Paul kind of pulls in everything that he's taught up to this point in the book of Romans into this very narrow kind of state, series of statements and questions and challenges. And you want to ask the question, who's he asking these questions to? It's very helpful to ask these questions and then go answer them in the Bible, right? After he's given us this beautiful, deep doctrinal truth on justification by faith right in Romans 3 21 through 26 he says this then what becomes of our boasting it is excluded by what kind of law by a law of works no but the law of faith for we hold that one is, here comes these words, justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, Paul has said that over and over at this point, and he will say it even more with even greater veracity as we go through this book. So you want to hang on to that. He is, he is giving us the two ends of the spectrum, right? Through faith or by the works of the law. And we know from other scriptures, by the works of the law, we nullify grace. 
Very serious, okay? Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only, invoking this partiality that we studied through Romans 2? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Who was the apostle gloriously saved out of the pinnacle of Judaism to be the minister and evangelist and apostle to the Gentiles? Paul. Paul. Keep that in mind, okay? I'm going to just keep putting these little set stones in your mind. That's very central to this. Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, and as we talked last week, the common denominator there is faith. One way of salvation, through faith, whether you be a Jew or a Gentile. That's his point. But I want you to look at verse 31. Do we then, pay attention to this word, overthrow the law by this faith? Dear brothers and sisters, this is the allegation against Paul that is so very personal to him. And you'll see why. And you'll see the emotion. By no means, and bear in mind, by a dimly lit light and a set of eyes that weren't working right, it appears, and the frail Paul, he is the one pinning this from his experience and his emotions. On the contrary, he says, we uphold the law. So the contrast here is we don't overthrow the law, we uphold the law. But Paul, you just said that we're not saved by the law. And there I will tell you to this very day in the church is one of the areas of the greatest confusion you will find in the church today. How are we saved? Is it by some admixture of what Jesus did and my works, as the Roman Catholics and so many more would say? Is it by my decision? Is it by my this? Is it by my that? Or is it of God, right? Where does the law fit into the gospel, right? Am I supposed to throw the gospel out? I'm sorry, the, the law out as soon as I come to the gospel? But this is what Paul is invoking in the minds of his readers. And so we need to invoke these things in our mind and then look to the scriptures to help us nail them down, which thankfully Paul writes the entire rest of this book of Romans to do that very thing, okay? Overthrowing the law is the clear allegation. What Paul's defending, both for himself and for the gospel, okay? Look at Romans 3.8. Just back up if you don't want to. I'll read it. Romans 3.8 was the first time he alludes to this. He says in Romans 3.8, And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Who's the us? We know from history unfolding 
that in many ways what became the allegation and informal word was antinomianism, which is the idea that we should just unhitch ourselves from the law and we can be saved and not yet be under the lordship of Christ. That's what it looks like today, right? Paul's teaching invoked massive confusion about this point. And that's what I want you to see. But it wasn't Paul's teaching. It was Paul's teaching about the very truth of the gospel and how we're saved. But if we don't take the time, like Paul did, with people who are utterly confused about this topic they may not even have a proper view of their own salvation, as Tina and I often encounter in our counseling, right? I want to walk through the progression of Scripture that begin to reveal this. As, per, as, as personal as it was to the Apostle Paul, we're going to see very quickly that it goes right back to the ministry of our Lord as well, okay? So get your fingers ready or just let me read and listen and th this study will be posted in the notes so you can go back and walk through it. But I wanna, wanna first go to Matthew 5.17 on this whole topic of why was this so personal to Paul? This being we are saved by faith totally separate from the law. But that does not mean we throw out the law, which then provokes the question, what do we do with the law? Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, when you read that, you want to immediately have in your head this is where the righteousness of God comes from. There it is. Jesus perfectly fulfilling the law is where the righteousness of God that becomes the righteousness from God that justifies God in our salvation. Because the law was fulfilled by Christ and then imputed to us. Okay? And Jesus is making it clear the purpose that he has come for. Now I want to go to the negative side of this, and I want you to see the allegations of the Pharisees and the soon-to-be Judaizers in Luke 5, 29 and 32, through 32. And here we see the call of Matthew, also known as Levi, in verse 29 of Luke 5. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. So there's the Lord, a bunch of the disciples, right in the mix of those filthy tax collectors and a whole bunch of other sinners, right? And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, and Matthew will reveal that it was the Lord and his disciples, saying, 
why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, why are you throwing off the law? This is forbidden. You claim to be something, but you're throwing off the law. You are living unrighteous. You are commingling yourself, defiling yourself with sinners and tax collectors. Right? It was beneath them. So why were they even there? They were already looking for their ways to put him on that cross. Okay? Great point. Now look what Jesus says in verse 31 of Luke 5. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then look at verse 32, when we think about this righteousness of God versus the filthy rags of self-righteousness and realize that this is exactly who Jesus is talking to. And he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You hear what he's saying there? He left the self-righteous right where they were. They wouldn't hear him. It was the sinner who has been brought to the bottom of themselves through the work of the Holy Spirit that's going to hear the gospel. But do those self-righteous people need to hear that gospel? Yes. Are they going to respond at times ferociously? I think we'll see in our study that that's exactly the case. Okay? Which is exactly part of my point. This was very personal for Paul. By the way, keep in mind that there's a guy named Saul we're going to get into in a minute who is in the very pinnacle of this system. Okay, keep that in mind. Look with me at Luke 7.34. And we'll see this accusation again against our Lord. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, accusing him of living a lawless life, a life that has thrown off the law because he's commingling himself with sinners, right? Now, hang on and go to Acts 6 with me. This is going to get at the heart of why this is so, I would say, heart-wrenching personal for Paul. I want you to see it. Acts 6, verse 3 says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And the duty was the church had gotten so busy, so large, so full of need, that the apostles were being pulled away from their ministries. 
and it needed to stop. This is a beautiful picture of the early church, beautiful picture of the priorities that we have as leaders in the church. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose who? Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and then there's a whole bunch of names I'm going to make a mess out of, but of Philip, of Pro Prochorus, I don't know, and Nicanor, and Timon, if it's Timon and Puma, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and then they prayed and laid hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the law, faith. Became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Continue on in verse 9. And here it comes. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Don't you love that, Grady? That's, that is the whole armor of God in full motion. No matter what they tried to throw at Stephen, he just brought the scripture right back and absolutely, beautifully, humbly stood behind the word of God. That's what you see unfolding there. I just love, just, just, you know, this is again, these are real people. This is a real young man. This is somebody's son. These, this young man are people's dear, dear, dear beloved brothers and sisters, right? Think of it that way. Don't read your Bible in an academic or technical way. This is real, right? Think of Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, now pay attention. I don't mean that in a condescending way. It's just a, a, a thread here we've got. It. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses. Now, who does this sound like? Is this not exactly what they did to our Lord? 
And is this not exactly why Jesus said to those disciples in that upper room, everything they do to me, they're going to do to you. That's where this gets personal. This is the reading of a book where you become so intimate with the characters, you, you feel. This we should feel. This is exactly what is unfolding here. They set up false witnesses who said, now this is what I need you to see. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and what? The law. They're accusing him of the same thing. They're accusing Jesus. Stephen was saying, throw off the law. He's speaking against the law. He's sharing the gospel. And what they're hearing in their unbelieving, unregenerate, self-righteous state is they're telling me to throw off the law. Right? For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And there's a very long treatment of Stephen's response to this council, and he concludes that in verse in Acts 7:51. So we're going to skip over a large beautiful section that we all should know. And he says this. And you know uh, this, this, this was the zeal of Stephen right here. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit who is speaking through Stephen to them directly with their own truths, and they can't hear a word of it because they are trapped in the delusion of self-righteous religion. And the gospel makes absolutely no sense and is an affront to the self-righteous religious person whom Stephen is talking to right here. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of which one? Which one? The righteous one. So as a self-righteous religious person relying on the law, how can there be a righteous one if everybody else is not the righteous one? There's the issue right there. This is why the response was so violent, okay? The coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Jesus, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So in a very real way, Stephen is saying, if we use the word antinomianism, you're the one who's thrown off the law. Look at what you did to the righteous one who came to save. 
you're the one who has thrown off the law, and you think you're actually keeping the law in your self-righteous delusion of religion, right? That's what's being invoked here. And it, I'm sorry if I sound a little intense, but it is a little intense when you really think about it. Now, enter into the scene that we're currently in, a guy named who? Saul. Okay, let the silence hit you for a minute. Here's Saul, this guy that's writing Romans for us, Paul. Here he comes, right in the middle of this situation. And the issue for Stephen that is been the means by which the Lord was crucified and Stephen is now about to be stoned is the very same issue that Paul is teaching us about in Romans. And here's where it gets very personal for Paul as he reflects back. Acts 7, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen now, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Man, what a beautiful picture that is of how at that moment where you know you're about to be pummeled to death, you can look up and literally see the Lord welcoming you into heaven. This is how the old-timey saints withstood these fires that they were being burned to death in because they knew there was the first death but no second death. And what a vivid way to describe the second death for those who don't believe. Because if there is one thing in the midst of that dying by fire that you must be pleading for. It is to die. There comes a point where you're in such pain that you want to die. Jesus described hell as the death that never dies. You have no hope of that death ever dying. He was the creator of all things and therefore the creator of that. We should take that very seriously, very soberly. Verse 56, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed all together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, 
he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. This is in the heart of Jerusalem. Paul is there overseeing this stoning. And it's not a leap to think that he was there in the council when Stephen was being dragged in. Okay? You know, there's so many thoughts you can have about Saul, the fact that he was so intimately involved in all of this, but not mentioned until this point. It just leaves you wondering, brother. You can't be dogmatic, but you know Paul was very, right here, you know he was very intimately intertwined in this movement to get the Christians wiped off the face of the earth. Why? Because he was at the pinnacle with Nicodemus of the self-righteous religious system. And if Jesus is right, their whole system comes crashing down. Right? And so the Apostle Paul writes the entire book of Romans to take it down. He really does. Okay, so let me bring you back to how does this become so personal for Paul? Go with me to Acts 15.1. And we're going to see here the continuing battle now with a converted Paul and this constant battle he has with the Judaizers that we hear all the way through Acts and all the way through the ministry of Paul. And most certainly and prominently within Jerusalem, where James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, ministers to the church in Jerusalem. See that connection here, okay? Acts 15.1, we see the Judahers, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses. Isn't that exactly the opposite of what Stephen was being accused of? See the connection? Make those connections when you're studying. According to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Let me read it again. Unless you are circumcised and done according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What are they doing? They're adding religious works to the perfect and finished work of Christ that Paul says nullifies the gospel of grace and renders Jesus' death worthless. It says it in the book of Galatians. You cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So there's our Paul as far away from Saul as you can get because he's now going right at the same Judaizers that he used to be a part of while he stoned and oversaw and had the blood of Stephen on his hands. And there it is. That's why it's personal. I'm just going to give you the answer. Paul had the blood of Stephen on his hands. And he now knows as Paul 
that he murdered Stephen for the very thing he now knows to be the absolute center of the gospel. And Stephen beautifully died at the hands of Saul, defending that gospel. And Paul is going to defend that gospel with his life to honor his Lord and one could easily see to honor Stephen and vindicate him, right? It's just precious. And after Paul of Acts 15.2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this very same question. So here it comes. He's coming back to Jerusalem, and he's going to address this topic with James and the Jerusalem church and the elders. Acts 21, verse 17. And when he had come to Jerusalem, Paul, now with the gift to the Jerusalem church that was horrendously, severely persecuted, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. And all the elders were present. And greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, being Paul's. Had to be a wonderful, wonderful moment in the early church to see that come together. The Gentiles being saved into the church, and then you've got the Jews in the Jerusalem church, led by James. But look at the topic that's being discussed. Verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are zealous for the law. Now, in the context of this, you kind of got to think about that. Is that a good thing? Or is that a bad thing? I would say it depends on which side of the cross you're on. It depends on your answer to the question, from where does my righteousness come from? Is it from my keeping of the law? Rejecting Christ? Or is it from my love for the Lord, who was the righteousness of God, who was perfectly obedient to the law, so that he could be the righteousness of God that now came from God to me? And my means of honoring him, as Paul says in Romans 12, is to be conformed to Christ through obedience to the law, not for the purpose of salvation to the glory of the Lord and the spirit that is now in you to do those very things and to boast only in the Lord and not of ourselves 
But look where it goes here. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, Paul. They are coming to us. They are believers. They love the law. They love Christ. But somebody has told them about you. What have they said about Paul? That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to what? Forsake Moses? And telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs or in the language he uses in Romans, to throw off the law for the Jew. And as I was telling Jeff, Jeff, this is where this gets, we better get clear on what all's going on here. And that's what we need to do because that's where Paul takes us. But you see the accusation, don't you? They're blaming, okay, now they're blaming Paul and he's defending himself in front of James and the elders for the very same thing that Saul crucified, sorry, stoned Stephen for. You ever have the providence of God just hit you in ways that are just stunning? Think about Paul right here. Now I'm being challenged because the Judaizers are spreading words that I'm telling the Jews to throw off Moses and throw off the law, which is exactly the way they misinterpreted Stephen. And Jeffrey's going to help us for the next coming weeks get clarity on this issue because that's right where Paul goes in Romans 4. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is, this, what then is to be done? <laughs> James says to Paul, right? They will certainly hear that you have come, Paul, and they're coming after you. These are fighting words, just as you know far too well as Saul. See how dangerous our religion can get when not properly understood, properly examined, not properly thought through in terms of the question, where does my righteousness come from? What have I contributed to my salvation? And what do I have to boast about and get puffed up about? And anybody that comes at me and tries to tear that down with the gospel, I think we have a pretty good three-step view of the kind of response. Jesus crucified. Stephen stoned. Paul sawed in half. This is at the heart of the gospel. And its greatest enemy is self-righteous religion. Look at Acts 21, 27, and 8, and you'll see it again. 
When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And there it is. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. And then look at verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut, and they were seeking to kill him. Now remember, Paul's writing Romans before Acts was ever written because he wanted this topic dealt with in its most detailed manner. And he speaks the same things over and over and over again in this book of Romans so that this issue is just encased in how we understand the gospel because this was the life Paul lived and the threats and attacks against the gospel and therefore against him. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out, and at once, and at once the gates were shut and they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, and now we go into the trials of Paul. So back to our original question. Do you see how personal this was for Paul? Do you see that defending this doctrine was the very reason he killed a young man who in his eyes as a believer and a, just a, a lover of the church. Do you think the emotions of that just goes away? I don't think so either, Jeffrey. I think you can lay it at the Lord's feet in his providence to bring all this about. But can you ever lose the images of that beautiful young saint being pummeled to death for the very thing, same thing that you're now willing to die for. You see the irony of God's providence in that and how that same providence works in our life as we have the opportunity to witness the gospel. And sometimes it's just a boomerang that comes right back around at you from a previous life you lived in your former life, right? So let me leave you with these two passages as we just ponder all of that. And this whole topic of antinomianism. Why do we have to go any farther than 1 John 1, 5 through 10? <laughs> I mean, seriously, why? Because we don't believe the word of God. That's how the visible church can just utterly reject the word of God and let the world ride into the church because we don't believe the word of God. Look at how clear this passage is in 1 John 1, 5 through 10 when it comes to this issue of 
throwing off the law in our saved lives. John says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. You see the intimacy there between John and the Lord? That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. John, the preacher of absolutes, I love that, black and white, right? Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And at that point, some might ask, well, wait a minute, I struggle with sin. Does that mean I'm not cleansed by the blood of Jesus? And we can say, Thank you, John. Thank you, Lord, for verse 8. Okay? Because verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, thank you, John, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is the ongoing need for repentance of the daily lives we live and the struggle we have with the flesh against the sin. And I can tell you that if we start to wane in our need for repentance, are we slipping ourselves into some self-righteous delusion? If we don't even see the sins we're committing? <laughs> it's a warning, right, for all of us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, look how serious this is. We make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Paul says it another way in Galatians 2.21, and we'll end here. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen? Ryan, would you pray for us? So now we're going to pick up in uh, Romans 4, and Mr. Tankersley has graciously stepped in to take Romans 4, 1 through 22, and look at how Paul moves our thinking from the topic we just discussed, and in there is something that was asked a couple of weeks ago about what do we do with the law? And how do we separate the ceremonial law from the moral law? How does all that work together? So Jeffrey is going to take that on for us, and I'm looking forward to it starting next week. Okay.
All right. Thank you, guys.